Let's pray together for just a moment. Our Father, we come to you now in one of those very special moments in which we get to have the privilege of beginning a new book of the Bible to walk through together. And as we begin Ezra and Nehemiah this evening, Lord, we pray that you would be blessed with our diligence to love your word. And I pray that we would be blessed with the knowledge that you are faithful and that as we'll see in the coming months in these books, that you prove your faithfulness over and over and over again. We will see the sovereign actions of a sovereign God. We will see the good hand of God. We will see a God who remembers. And so we pray that our hearts would be touched, our minds would be expanded to know our God through this study that we begin this evening. We pray in Christ's name, amen. I want to return to the chorus we just sang. These words are timeless. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. So beginning tonight in Ezra Nehemiah, you can turn to Ezra chapter 1. We'll take a bit of time getting there. If you haven't been to Ezra in a while, it's right after 2 Chronicles, right before Nehemiah. And I'm calling this series, Great is Thy Faithfulness, which will become apparent as we go through some reasons for this. The introduction to Ezra Nehemiah really could go all the way back to the book of Exodus. And so we kind of have to start there, and then we'll hit some Genesis as well. But we have to go all the way back to the beginning of Israel. God formed the nation of Israel. He rescued them out of Egypt. And He gave them a purpose. Exodus 19.5, If you will indeed, indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, you shall be My treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is Mine. And here is Israel's purpose. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel was to be the message of God to a watching world. And he had a destination for them. A place in which they would accomplish this mission. Deuteronomy 6.3 God says, Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them. That is the law of God, that it may go well with you that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. They would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation in a land. But God didn't just randomly pick a nation to bless. He didn't randomly pick a nation to be the conduit of the knowledge of God to the world. He formed this nation from one man. And he made promises to this one man. Genesis 12, beginning in verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so God promised to make Abram, later to be renamed Abraham, into a great nation. And what goes with that nation? First, land goes with that nation. And Genesis 15, 18, and 19 gives the exact boundaries of this promised land. And second, what goes with that nation? Not just land, but eternal land. Eternal land. Genesis 13, verse 15, God promised that this land would belong to the descendants of Abraham forever. So God has promised that the descendants of Abraham will have a specific land as a nation and this nation will last forever and ever. But God would also provide a ruler. He would provide a king. Genesis twenty-two seventeen, God speaking to Abraham says, I will surely bless you and I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. We have two mentions of offspring. The first offspring speaks of all the people that God will form from this one man. And the second offspring, singular, is a man who will be kingly. 
He will possess the gates of his enemies. Psalm 24 speaks of this man, this coming king. Psalm 24, 7 and 8 says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. God promised Israel that she would have a king. Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20, God stipulates what kind of king Israel must have. A king who obeys God, and this must be a king whom God chooses. But God also made a promise. And that promise is that if Israel did not keep covenant with covenant love with God, that he would punish and exile her. He speaks of both a nation and a king. In Deuteronomy 28, 36 and 37, the Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And you shall become a horror, a proverb and a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. He promises them in Deuteronomy 28 that if, if they do not keep covenant love, their king and the nation will be taken away into exile. Well, ultimately, the young nation of Israel living in the land would want a worldly king, not a man after God's heart. They would want a strong man to fight their battles for them. And so God used the prophet Samuel to choose Saul, the biggest and tallest man in Israel, a king that Israel wanted, not a king that God wanted. And so God chose for Israel a king who would prove to be a coward, a king who could be found hiding on some occasions, a king who would not fight the Philistine giant Goliath whose armies threatened Israel. All this to demonstrate that a king after God's own heart who loves and trusts God and, and would defend the very name, the very honor of God at all costs. That was the real king that God wanted for Israel. And so when Saul was cowering, the biggest man in the nation, and he's cowardly, in cowardly fashion hiding, and he's offering to pay anybody else to fight the Philistine giant Goliath. A boy named David, the son of Jesse, came and he fought Goliath. He fought by faith and he fought for the honor of God. 1 Samuel 17 records that not only would David kill Goliath, David told Goliath in advance that he was going to kill him. And that he was going to do it by God's power. Quote, so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. What is the purpose of Israel? To be a kingdom of priests, to be a light to the world. And David fulfilled that purpose. And no wonder this is David taking this fight in the previous chapter in first samuel 16 at god's direction in a very quiet private ceremony the prophet samuel anointed david the very next king of israel a man that god said was after his own heart and god promised david in second samuel 7 that the king of israel who would reign forever and ever would come from david and so what do we have what we have seemingly all jumbled up here are three different covenants. We have the Abrahamic covenant, God's covenant with Abraham. God promised Abraham that from his body would come a nation who would possess the promised land forever. And from Abraham would come the singular seed who in kingly fashion would possess the gates of his enemies. And then you have the Mosaic covenant or the Israelite covenant, the covenant that God made with, with Israel if the Abrahamic covenant was unconditional, then the Mosaic covenant is conditional. The Mosaic covenant was a conditional promise that God would bless Israel in all her ways in the land if she was faithful to covenant love and obedience. And God would give a king, but the king must be obedient. But it was a conditional covenant in that if Israel did not fulfill covenant stipulations, covenant love, and ultimately, God would exile her to a foreign land. This is promised all the way back in Deuteronomy 28. So you have the Abrahamic covenant, you have the Mosaic covenant, and just to make this more complicated, you have the Davidic covenant, God's covenant with David. That this nation of Israel would have a king descended from King David who would fulfill all righteousness, who would reign forever and ever in the land of Israel. So the question we would have is, how can all these things happen at once? 
How can God make a lot of promises that seem like one could cancel out another? Because after David, things went south pretty quickly. He had a son, Solomon, and Solomon laid the groundwork for the failure of the kingdom of Israel by his own covenant disloyalty. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, lost the kingdom in just about 24 months. Ten tribes splitting to the north and staying, and just two staying to the south, and now there's two kingdoms. And in 722 BC, the northern kingdom was decimated by Assyria in judgment for her covenant treachery, her disobedience to the Lord, her abandoning of worshiping the one true living God. And now all that was left of Israel was the tiny southern kingdom of Judah, and and she was hanging on by a thread. Morally, she was bankrupt. Religiously, she was empty. And only a few faithful continued in true faithful worship to Yahweh. The prophet Habakkuk cried out about the injustice in the land, the covenant treachery. He complained to God about how how bad things had gotten. In Habakkuk 1 verse 2, he says, Oh Yahweh, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? And God answered in Habakkuk 1, he said, I'm going to fix the problem. And the solution is that conquest and exile are on the way. He promised Habakkuk that true to his word to Israel some 800 years earlier, when he gave this warning to them in Deuteronomy 28, the Babylonians were coming and they were going to decimate Israel and carry off many of her people. In 605 BC, Babylon came. They carried off the best and the brightest of Israel, including, including Daniel and his friends. In 597, they came back and they did it again. And finally, in 586, Nebuchadnezzar came and he destroyed Jerusalem. He wiped out the land. He killed the livestock. He cut down the trees. He made the land basically unlivable. Most were killed. The rest were taken The prophet Jeremiah, after years and years of warning Judah, he witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem. And he records his great grief and his anguish in the book of Lamentations. Lamentations 1 verse 1, he says, How lonely sits the city that was full of people! How like a widow has she become! She who is great among the nations, she who is a princess among the provinces, has become a slave. In fact, Jeremiah symbolically pictures himself as Jerusalem, utterly destroyed. In in Lamentations 3, 1 through 6, he says he's felt the wrath of God, that God has broken his bones, that God has left him in utter darkness. Further in chapter 3, he describes God as a bear, hunting him down, waiting to tear him to pieces. And that's exactly what's happened. And now the city is like a once great ghost town. And Jeremiah is devastated because Israel is gone. There is no Israel. But then, Jeremiah writes in Lamentations 3.21, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. What was Jeremiah's hope? His only hope was that God is faithful. And when he makes a promise, he always sticks to it. His hope was that these three covenants must work together. They must. That if God promised Abraham a nation with a king forever and ever in the promised land, an unconditional promise, that if God promised Israel in the Mosaic Covenant a conditional promise that blessing would remain as long as Israel was faithful, but if they disobeyed, the nation would be destroyed. And that if God also gave an unconditional promise to King David that his offspring would defeat all of Israel's enemies and would reign over Israel forever and ever, Jeremiah can only come to one conclusion that is logical, that God is going to restore the kingdom of Israel. Why? Great is thy faithfulness. That's Jeremiah's conclusion. And so we're not surprised to find later in Lamentations, Jeremiah's fervent prayer at the very end of the book, he says this in Lamentations 5, 21 and 22. 
Restore us to Yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. But He ends on a question. Unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. And has God utterly rejected Israel for all time? 650 years later, the Apostle Paul answers this question, which Jeremiah posed. In Romans 11, verse 1, he says, I ask then, has God rejected His people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. And long before Paul, God gave countless reassurances of His faithfulness to Israel. In Hosea 3, verse 5, Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to His goodness in the latter days. Joel chapter 2, 26 and 27, You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. Amos 9.11 promises that the house of David would be restored. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Obadiah promises that the exiles will return. Micah 4, 1 and 2 says the whole world will come to visit Israel, come to visit Jerusalem as the capital of the entire world. Zephaniah 3, 14 and 15 Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. And in fact, while those are timeless in that there's no time frame given, The prophet Jeremiah himself received a promise from the Lord about the exile, a very, very specific promise. Jeremiah 25, 12, and 13, and Jeremiah 29, 10. Jeremiah received from the Lord that the exile would last 70 years. Specific promises. And so tonight we join the Israelites now in exile in Babylon. Babylon has recently been conquered and taken over by the Persians. And we pick up their story, their exile in Ezra chapter 1. Look with me at verses 1 through 4. Ezra 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. The drama of the return of Israel to her own land begins in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. We know specifically this is 538 B.C., This is some 68 years after the first exiles were taken. And in two more years, the foundation of the Temple of Jerusalem would be laid once again, bringing us to how many years? 70, just as Jeremiah prophesied. Now, from here on out, for the purposes of finding passages, we'll continue to refer to the individual books of Ezra and Nehemiah, but it is really more proper to refer to the work as a unified whole, Ezra and Nehemiah. It's one book. It's one long story taking, the place, taking place over a period of about 114, 115 years. The themes of the book are consistent with one another. They use some of the same phrases. The very earliest Hebrew manuscripts from about AD 1000 didn't divide the books. The Masoretes, the, 
the transcribers of the Old Testament text from about A.D. 500 onward, they regarded the two as one work. And in fact, they identified the middle verse, Nehemiah 3.22. They said that's the middle of this one book. There are numerous other ancient sources all attesting to Ezra and Nehemiah as one work. And you might wonder, well, why is it two in our Bible then? The first known division into two books was by Origen in the 3rd century A.D., but he believed that Ezra and Nehemiah was one book, but he split it for some reason. Jerome, around A.D. 400, divided the books into two in his Latin translation, the Vulgate, which became the standard Bible for basically the next thousand years. But Jerome believed they were one book, and he acknowledged that the Jews did as well. And so our choice in this preaching series is to treat the two as one. And so when we speak of Ezra and Nehemiah, that is the proper way to address it, but uh, I, if I say Ezra Nehemiah chapter 2, you don't know which one I'm talking about. So we'll still say Ezra and Nehemiah when we're looking up addresses. Jewish tradition takes Ezra as the author, but at the end of the day, it really should be considered an anonymous work written shortly right after the end of these events. It was probably written around 400 BC, just 24 years after the end of this drama. But what's important is we do see Ezra's actual words in here. We also will see Nehemiah's actual words in this work. So why would God give this book to Israel? And very, very shortly after the end of the events that are described, why would he give this to them? This is a history of God's faithfulness in the very recent past. From the vantage point of the original readers, Ezra and Nehemiah is proof that God has been loyal. He's been loyal to his covenant love with Israel as given through the Abrahamic covenant. He's keeping his promise to form them into a nation forever. But the big question is, and I, I told you a few weeks ago that Ezra and Nehemiah has surprises. The big question and the surprise of Ezra and Nehemiah is, would Israel be able to be loyal? Would they be able to be faithful? Would they be able to be obedient? Would they demonstrate covenant love this time? Could they be successful? Or would something new have to happen to ensure their success? Is this going to be a massive, glorious return? Is this going to be a kingdom that rules the world as, as all the prophecies I read you early seem to indicate? Or is this going to be a bit of an anticlimactic, puny return? The geography of the situation gives us a bit of a clue. In the days of Rehoboam, son of Solomon, the kingdom split, and after the northern kingdom fell, only the Israelite territory, uh, the only Israelite territory was in the southern region of Judah. And now when the remnant of Israel would return to Judah, they would only occupy a tiny percentage of even that land, about 900 square miles. Let me put that in perspective. Kern County is nine times bigger than the whole nation that Israel would possess. Our little city here is... If you put six of them together, you have all of the nation of Israel at this point. It's tiny. You, you could start on one end and walk to the other in a day. And so we begin to get a clue that this is not necessarily a glorious return. I'd like to spend a few moments walking through the story here. And from a literary standpoint, Ezra and Nehemiah can be divided into three main acts. The, the first one is by far the longest. And we'll start there, then it gets the second one is shorter, and the, the last one is very short. We'll title each of these acts just to give us some structure to organize our thoughts, but I'd like to walk through the story with you. Act one, we'll call God's sovereign faithfulness. God's sovereign faithfulness, and we'll spend most of our time here. God is going to demonstrate his faithfulness to his promises. And the theme of his sovereignty, his divine intervention into the affairs of men is, is heavy in this section. God's going to demonstrate his sovereign faithfulness in three ways. And they're identified by the three different returns from exile. And I should point out that not everybody came back at once. And in fact, the return was only a very small percentage of all the Jews in exile. Most of them wanted to stay. Most of them were settled into their Persian life. See also the book of Esther which happened at the same time. But there's three different returns and that, that divides our thoughts here in act one of God's sovereign faithfulness. The first way God demonstrates his sovereign faithfulness, the first return we'll call 
faithfulness to restore worship. Faithfulness to restore worship. And we're going to track God's faithfulness to restore worship through the clear statements of his sovereignty. We've already read one of them. Ezra 1 verse 1, in the, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah by, might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation. You notice that the Lord is working in the very heart of Cyrus. At this time, the most powerful man on earth. And by the way, just how sovereign is God? This decree happened in 538 BC. 150 years earlier. Eight decades before the exile even happened. In Isaiah 45, God decreed that a king would free God's people at God's command. And he said that king's name will be Cyrus. And so God sovereignly stirred the heart of Cyrus to issue a decree that the temple of God would be rebuilt in Jerusalem. God sovereignly chose people to return, again working in the inner recesses of the heart. Verse 5, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Cyrus ordered that all the worship implements captured so many decades earlier by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, that those be returned with the returning exiles. Ezra chapter 2 lists the exact number of exiles returning, the precise number God had stirred to return. How sovereign is God? Look at Ezra 2 verse 64 near the end of the chapter. The whole assembly together was 42,360 besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 200 male and female singers. How sovereign is God? Their horses were 736. Their mules were 245. Their camels were 435. And their donkeys were 6,720. Why were there 6,720 donkeys? Because that's what God decreed. Because He's sovereign over everything. Ezra 3 records the rebuilding of the altar of God in Jerusalem so that the sacrificial system could eventually resume, that the worship of God could resume. And in the second year after the return, in chapter 3, verse 8, the foundation of the new temple was laid and how the people rejoiced. Ezra 3, verse 10, And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of As- sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Verse 12 records that some of the old men wept. Because they remembered Solomon's temple, which had been destroyed. And this little start was a pittance compared to the original. And now, a theme that will recur repeatedly in Ezra and Nehemiah. We see the first opposition to this restoration happening. Chapter 4 records non-Jews wanting to join in with the building of the temple. But this is not good news. Because God's people are to be distinct. They're to be holy. They're to be separate. They're to be apart. And when the leadership of Israel said, no, thank you, then the opposition turned on them and tried to get the new king of the Persian Empire to stop construction, which he did. But in chapter 5, God in His sovereignty gave the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. And in Haggai and Zechariah, they're told, keep building the temple, keep moving forward, keep going toward the worship of God. The opponents began chiding and questioning the Jews And God sovereignly intervened. Ezra 5, verse 5. Ezra 5, verse 5. But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer should be returned by letter concerning it. Again, the sovereignty of God intervening. Well, opposition continued until Persia reversed the official decision in chapter 6. And the temple was completed. Worship could resume. And why was the temple completed? Ezra 6, verse 14. Here's why. 
and the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel. And then almost in parentheses, and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. God moving through the hearts of kings. It was by the decree of God. The first way God demonstrates his sovereign faithfulness at the first return, faithfulness to restore worship. We're still in act one. The second way God demonstrates his sovereign faithfulness at the second return, faithfulness to restore shepherding. To restore shepherding. Ezra chapter seven, verse one. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah. And then verses 2 through 5 show that Ezra is a direct descendant of Aaron, the brother of Moses. Verse 6, this Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And he went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers, and the temple servants. The reason Ezra came to Jerusalem, verse 6, the hand of God was on him. And to make certain we get this point, in verse 9, For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. And look at the blessing coming to the the returned exiles who had already been in Jerusalem now for about 80 years. They get a shepherd. Can you imagine a, a church being without a pastor for 80 years? That's what they were, essentially. They're getting a shepherd, a teacher of the word. What kind of teacher is he? Chapter 7, verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. He knows the word of God. He lives the word of God and he teaches the word of God. That's a shepherd. Countless sermons from Ezra 7, verse 10 have been preached in seminaries around the country. And the king made a decree that Ezra should take vast quantities of wealth with him and that Ezra should have authority to appoint all the leaders and that Ezra should teach the very law of God itself. And Ezra himself now speaks in response to this tremendous blessing. And to whom does he attribute this? The sovereign Lord. Ezra 7 verse 27. He says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage. This is starting to be familiar, isn't it? For the hand of the Lord my God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Chapter 8 lists the exact people who came back with Ezra, but he found he didn't have any Levites with him, men prescribed by God to take care of the temple. And so he sent for temple servants to come with them to Jerusalem. And chapter 8, verse 18 tells us why good men came with Ezra. By the good hand of our God. Again, the sovereignty of God ruling every detail. Now, Ezra and his band of travelers were headed from Babylonia. It's still called this, even though it's Persian control. They're going from Babylonia to Jerusalem. It's a perilous journey. And so Ezra, the shepherd of God's people, proclaimed a fast to entreat the Lord's favor and protection. He went without soldiers to protect him. Why did he do this? Chapter 8, verse 22, For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, Since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him. And the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. In other words, Ezra didn't want to say, the hand of God will protect us. Could you send some soldiers? That doesn't make sense. And again, we see the good hand of God. And and how does he bring this about? Verse 23, so we fasted and implored our God for this. And he listened to our entreaty. Oh, did you know this? What we just learned about the sovereignty of God? 
The sovereignty of God not only ordains the end result, the protection of Ezra and his company, but he also ordains the means of that result, the method of that result, fasting and prayer. And so they began their journey to Jerusalem, and no surprise to us now, chapter 8, verse 31, no surprise at all. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and He delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. God sovereignly commissioned Ezra, gave him favor with the Persian king, provided temple servants, and provided protection And now Ezra arrives and he sets himself to the task of shepherding God's people. With about 80 years of being back in Jerusalem, God's people who returned had started taking wives from the surrounding nation. From the nations around them, they were now threatening the chosen nature of God's people by mixing with other peoples who were worshiping false gods. I thought about this as a pastor and I relate to Ezra just a bit, I guess. It feels like a pastor coming to a new church that's a mess spiritually. They're just completely upside down. And Ezra is grief stricken. There's spiritual chaos that he walks into here. And in chapter 9, he prays a magnificent and humble prayer of contrition and repentance on behalf of God's people. And in chapter 10, in response to Ezra's prayer, the people repented. They put away the foreign wives and sent the children with them. Why? Because the worship of God had been polluted. And the nation was cleansed of sin once more by the hard act of repentance. Why? Because God had faithfully provided a shepherd. And so the first way God demonstrates His sovereign faithfulness at the first return, faithfulness to restore worship. The second way, at the second return, faithfulness to restore shepherding. Still in Act 1 now, the third way God demonstrates His sovereign faithfulness, faithfulness to restore protection. Faithfulness to restore protection. Now we turn from the temple to the rebuilding of the wall, the major source of protection for an ancient city. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king of Persia, and he received a report that devastated him. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. Devastating report. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And so Nehemiah prays, confessing the sins of Israel and asking for the opportunity to help. One day when Nehemiah was before the king as the cupbearer, The king noticed that his face was sad. And when he inquired why, Nehemiah told him. And the king said, what do you want? And so Nehemiah basically said this. I would like letters of authority, permission to rebuild the city and the walls, free lumber for construction, free lumber for a house to be built for myself, and let me stay for 12 years as the governor of the land. Not much. And look at Nehemiah Chapter 2, the end of verse 8. And the king granted me what I asked. Why? For the good hand of my God was upon me. So Nehemiah traveled to Jerusalem with just a few men as well as an army escort by the king. He decided to go ahead and take advantage of the soldiers, apparently. He He inspected the walls. He took over construction. And as always, there was more opposition. In chapter 4, and once again, God intervened to have the work continue. Chapter 4, verse 15. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. Nehemiah was not only building the wall to protect the city from outside invaders, he was also protecting the people from each other. In chapter 5, Nehemiah 
address the issue of wealthy Jews enslaving the poorer ones to pay back exorbitant debts that had been incurred. And so Nehemiah provided protection there. He corrected the problem forcibly and and radically. In chapter 6, yet again, opposition to the nearly finished wall resulted in a plot against Nehemiah's life by surrounding enemies. His life was saved and the wall was finished. Why? Chapter 6, verse 15. Chapter 6, verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, All the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. God's sovereign faithfulness to restore worship, to restore shepherding, to restore protection. And what's the result? Chapter 7, at the very end, verse 73. Chapter 7, verse 73 So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. Looks to me like the kingdom of Israel is making a comeback. Act 1, God's sovereign faithfulness. That brings us to Act 2, we'll call the people's great start. The people's great start. It just gets better. In what I I really consider personally one of the most moving scenes in all of the Bible. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. In other words, the people come to Ezra and they say, we want to be taught the word of God. And they all gather together outside of Jerusalem. Ezra read the law of God from dawn until noon. There were multiple Bible teachers there not only translating it because much of the younger generation couldn't speak Hebrew, but explaining it and how the people loved the preached word of God. Chapter 8, verse 12. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. You understand that, don't you? You understand the rejoicing of understanding the word of God? They heard sermons all day, every day for 23 days. That's a dream come true for a preacher. And what was the result? What does the Word of God do? It is a sword that is double-edged and it cuts to bone and it divides soul and spirit. Because after 23 days, they were cut to the quick by their own sin. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of a day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. They confessed sin for three hours straight. I think most Christians don't know how to confess sin for three minutes straight. The people are then led in a long prayer of confession, which includes in Nehemiah 9, a history of God's faithfulness to Israel. And they rightly assessed their situation before God. Nehemiah 9, verse 32. This is a correct assessment. Nehemiah 9, 32. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. In other words, they're saying, please remember us. Don't let our suffering seem little to you. And here's their assessment. Verse 33. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. And at the end of chapter 9 and all of chapter 10, the people vow to keep covenant with God once again. This time we will really obey. It's real this time. 
and things are looking up. Chapters 11 and 12, they chose 10% of all the people to live in Jerusalem. The rest occupied the surrounding towns. They had their gatekeepers and guards assigned in Jerusalem. This is a good sign. They had temple servants. They had singers in the temple praising God every single day. They had priests. They had Levites to run the religious worship life of the people. Other than still officially being under the rule of Persia, things were looking up. And in fact, they celebrated in grand fashion in chapter 12, verses 27 through 31. There's singing, there's musical instruments. And can you imagine this? Choirs standing on the walls of Jerusalem, singing back and forth to one another. We should open our new building that way. And how determined they were to obey. This time it'll be real. This time we'll do it. This time we will be loyal. This time we will be covenant faithful people. The conclusion to act two, the people's great start. Chapter 13, verse one. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. You notice how much they're in the word. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. In other words, they're obeying. They hear the word of God. They're tender to the word. They obey immediately, immediately, immediately. That's a great start. And oh, if Ezra Nehemiah would end right there. But it doesn't. We have to consider Act 3. And in Act 3, we'll call this a disappointing ending. A disappointing ending. Nehemiah has traveled back to Babylonia. Then he comes back to Jerusalem. This is, by the way, the fourth return now in Ezra Nehemiah. And he discovers other chaos and in rapid succession in chapter 13 the wheels have just come off chapter 13 verses 4 through 9 one of the priests is discovering discovered giving a a free apartment in the temple complex to one of his relatives desecrating the house of god using the space that was supposed to be used to store offerings of wine and grain and oil and other provisions to provide for the families of the levites and the singers and the gatekeepers and the priests Nehemiah threw this relative out, threw all his furniture out into the street. And he brought back all the provisions, all the the, the means by which the servants of God were to be provided for. Nehemiah takes a breath. But then in chapter 13, verses 10 through 13, he finds out the reason the provisions didn't need to be stored was they weren't being used. He found out that the Levites and the singers weren't being paid what was owed them. So they had had to go back to their own fields to to earn a living. The the house of God had been forsaken. Nehemiah had to fix this as well. Verses 15 through 22. Nehemiah discovered that on the Sabbath days, the sign of the Mosaic covenant given by God to indicate their trust in Him, their fidelity, their loyalty toward Him. On Sabbath days, a giant market was being set up in Jerusalem Every Sabbath day, selling anything and everything, turning the Sabbath into a county fair. Nehemiah had to lock the gates each Sabbath. Nehemiah commanded the Levites to guard the gates. In fact, when he locked the gates, they set up a market outside the gates and Nehemiah yelled down to him, don't make me come down there. And suddenly in the middle of this section of other failure of the people, the oddest thing happens. Nehemiah says a prayer. It's not for the nation. It's a prayer for himself. Chapter 13, verse 22. At the end of the verse, he says, Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Keep that prayer of mercy in the back of your mind for a moment. We're going to return to it. So the wheels have come off. But that's not even the worst that's happened. As they say on TV, but wait, there's more. Chapter 13, verses 23 through 29. Once again, the people had begun intermarrying with foreign women such that half of the children didn't even speak Hebrew. 
They spoke the language of their mothers. All the different languages. In other words, they were destroying Israel from the inside out. Israel was coming apart. It was like a disease in which the cells are separating from one another. Nehemiah confronted these men. He, I don't, the scripture doesn't condone or deny this. He cursed them. He beat some of them. He pulled the hair out of some of them. They're destroying the nation. And not only that, just a little topper here. The priests had stopped providing wood for the offerings at the appointed times and for the first fruits offering. In other words, they were abandoning the prescribed worship of God. The wheels had come off completely. They were a nation just like their neighbors. There was nothing holy about them. Nothing set apart. The purpose of Israel to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation had completely come unglued. After Act 2, the people's great start, suddenly in Act 3, a disappointing ending, and Nehemiah's running around trying to plug holes in the dam spiritually. The temple has been desecrated. The servants of God aren't being paid properly. The Sabbath is being ignored and turned into a county fair. They've ignored God's law concerning marriage again. They've abandoned the prescribed worship of God. Described to you four returns. In the first return, tens of thousands returned. In the second return, hundreds returned. In the third return, dozens returned. And in the fourth return, one returned. Nehemiah only, and he found spiritual chaos ruling the day. Musically, we call that a day crescendo. There's nothing glorious about this. What is happening Why did this return from exile ultimately fall flat and fail? Why was Nehemiah forced to provide external enforcement of God's law? Why is he literally beating people because they're in sin? Instead of simply enjoying seeing God's people obey out of an internal motivation, an internal desire to love the Lord their God. Why did the return fall flat? Because the geography changed, but their hearts did not. You see, Ezra Nehemiah proves that any attempt at self-revitalization will fail. What does Israel need in order for the Abrahamic covenant to be fulfilled? They need the new covenant. They need the new covenant in Christ who will be their king in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant who already fulfilled the Mosaic covenant at the cross. Now I want you to think back to that quick prayer of Nehemiah in Nehemiah 13.22. Remember this also to my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. The disappointing ending of Ezra Nehemiah is, the, is that the great Nehemiah acknowledges that the return of Israel has been a failure. And so the book ends with Nehemiah praying for himself. Nehemiah 13.31, the very last sentence of the book. He prays, remember me, oh my God, for good. Why? The title of this message is, The Kingdom Has Not Yet Come. And so Nehemiah is praying to be remembered when the real kingdom comes. The people were were still under Persian rule. This would shift to Greek rule, which would shift to Egyptian rule, to Syrian rule, a very, very brief period of independence. And then in 63 BC, Roman rule would come and it came to stay until Rome destroyed Jerusalem once again in AD 70. The Lord Jesus Christ was born under Roman rule. He proclaimed in Matthew 15 that he came to save the lost sheep of Israel, not from their political enslavement, but from their enslavement to sin. He came to bring the new covenant. He came to be the mediator of the new covenant, already promised by God in Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand, to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. 
So where does the end of Ezra and Nehemiah leave us? It leaves us needing to keep reading because the kingdom has not yet come. And thus Jesus commanded us to pray, your kingdom come. During the stoppage in the rebuilding of the temple, God sent prophets to exhort the people. One was Zechariah. And Zechariah's message to God's people ends on the climactic note of the coming of Messiah permanently to rule in Jerusalem and not just to rule Israel. Zechariah 14.9 says, The Lord will be king over all the earth. But something has to happen first. And it hasn't happened yet in history. Zechariah 12.10 And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Israel would have to repent as a nation and receive Christ as Savior, Christ as Lord, Christ as God, and receive the Holy Spirit as new covenant believers in Christ. Jesus already fulfilled the Mosaic Covenant by being a perfect law keeper on behalf of all who would place their faith in Him. He fulfills the Abrahamic Covenant by bringing Israel back permanently in the future with new hearts by the Spirit of God. And He fulfills the Davidic Covenant by ruling on the throne of His ancestor, King David. But for now, Ezra and Nehemiah leaves us yearning for the coming kingdom of Christ. But it is coming. How do we know? Because Nehemiah prayed, remember me. He prayed, remember me. Just before Christ's ascension into heaven after his resurrection, the disciples asked him one final question. And it was a kingdom question. Acts 1, 6, and 7, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, And the unspoken response would be something like this. Okay, but what do we do in the meantime? Well, he continued. Acts 1.8 But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What do you do in the meantime? You proclaim the gospel in the church age as we're doing even now. The restoration of the kingdom in Ezra and Nehemiah was doomed to failure because hearts had not changed. The new covenant had not come. But our sovereign God proved a point, didn't he? He proved that he can restore Israel anytime he wants to. He proved Jeremiah's hope in Lamentations 3 to be correct. That the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Every message that we do in Ezra and Nehemiah will center around a different proof, a different assurance that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Every message will center around proving the faithfulness of God, that He is indeed faithful to keep covenant love with those who are His. And so we join into the disappointing ending of Ezra and Nehemiah to keep reading and to wait by faith for the coming kingdom of Christ which is reserved for all who would repent, place their faith in Him, thereby receiving the Holy Spirit and becoming a partaker of the new covenant. And what does Romans 9 tell us? That we are grafted in with who? Israel. We're grafted in. So we wait for a kingdom just like they do. But how blessed are we? We've already begun partaking of the new covenant, haven't we? How glorious that is. We join the disappointing ending, but it makes us... Look to the end, doesn't it? Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for building the suspense that makes us flip the pages very quickly in the Word of God to look to the very last prayer in the Bible, the prayer of the Apostle John who said, Come soon, Lord Jesus. And we join in that prayer. Lord, as we travel together through Ezra and Nehemiah and each and every time we will find a proof that you are faithful, that great is thy faithfulness. 
that your mercies are new every morning, that your steadfast love never ceases. I pray that you would build our faith. I pray that you would help us to be believers in Christ who trust you, who trust in that which we cannot see, who trust in a Savior whom we have never met face to face. How thankful we are to be already participating in the new covenant even as we await the return of Christ and the the bringing of His kingdom to this world. We pray, Lord, that our time in Ezra and Nehemiah would be fruitful spiritually, that it would grow our church in depth and in love for You. We pray these things all to the glory of Christ our Savior, the King who is to come. Amen.